Today's Bible reading is coming from Acts 22, verses 22 to 30. It's titled, Paul the Roman Citizen. The crown listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I have to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander went to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Since Adam and Eve... So, you know, just sort of the beginning. We human beings have struggled with power dynamics. We have. Most people call this politics, but at the core, it's a struggle between those who have power, those who want power, and those caught in the middle. Human history is riddled with wars and disputes, And religion has had a very large part to play in this, not always for the better, in fact, rarely for the better, if you look at history. And today we still have violent conflicts in regions all over the world because differences in ideology and the struggle of power dynamics. And personally, I can guarantee you that you too have struggled with power dynamics in your life. For those of us that are married, I need to say no more. We've all struggled with power dynamics in the workplace, with what we so nicely are actually coined office politics. But really, if we're honest, our reaction to what's been gone, what has been going on has been rooted in a perceived injustice that has occurred somewhere along the way, um, either committed against us personally or against a whole group of people that we feel an affinity with. There's the, the, the person that you know, is really chummy with a boss, um, and seems to get away with anything because they're good mates. We've all seen had that person we've worked with, haven't we? Where they're really lazy, they do no work, and yet they are just like a protected species. We've been there. You've been there, right? The boss seems to be completely blind to reality because they're their mate. Then there's the system in place that through organisational bureaucracy and terrible management means that those on top are protected but they're inefficient, they're wasteful, and all the workers have to work twice as hard just to make up for the shortfalls in poor decision-making by those that are sort of above our pay grade, as we say. We've been there, haven't we? Then there's also the old salary disparity. You know, I used to really struggle with this when I was working at the cemetery. 
um, every Friday, an email would go out to all staff from the Human Resources Department letting us know who'd been hired and fired, basically. There was a lot of turnover. So every week, on Friday, you'd get this email, this person's been employed, this person's been employed, this person's been employed, and we say goodbye to the following three people, wish them well in their future endeavours. But it seemed like every second week, in that email was introducing this person who we've appointed to this new management position. Um, and so it's like every second week they're employing a new manager over something. It got to the point where I used to joke that there must be a manager for manager position creation um, at, at, the, at the cemetery because it seemed there was just about as many managers as there were frontline staff. And the power dynamics that that created was resentment towards management because they were in their office and never lifted a finger to do any real work, as what we were doing. Um, and really, what could they be doing anyway? We're a cemetery. I don't know. But if you look at the closest comparable cemetery, one had an executive salary of half a million, ours had 6.5 million, and they're the same size organisation. But anyway, that's another point. But what I, I guess we need to focus on, considering that you know we, we read the Bible here, um, is what was happening in the first century Jerusalem. That's where this passage was read from today about what's happening in first century Jerusalem with Paul. And they were really struggling with, with multiple power dynamics at play. So the city was under Roman occupation. So the Roman Empire was massive. We've all seen Gladiator, so we know, right? And, uh, they, they were just, they were it, it, governance over these areas and they were brutal. They were a brutal regime. Um, and so there was that power dynamic. Um, in Jerusalem, a local representative of Rome was appointed. The most local one was, a, was called the Tribune. Um, and he reported to the regional governor, whose name was Festus. That's a wonderful name, isn't it? Festus. Almost as good as the king, who was king at the time, King Agrippa. Yeah, Festus and Agrippa, you know. <sighs> Weird names. Um, and then, of course, there was Caesar in the hierarchy of Rome. But not only was there that power dynamic, there was also the internal Jewish power dynamics. So for a long time there had been this great dispute between two distinct groups. And these were known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. So let's take a look at these two groups a bit more closely and help us understand the situation Paul was in and maybe why you can understand why these people were so sad. The Sadducees were primarily of wealthy, priestly families in Jerusalem. They were apparently unfriendly, even to one another, and they were unpopular. They could be cruel judges. And when Jesus interrupted their financial interests in the temple, he was arrested and condemned. James, the brother of Jesus, was later actually killed by a Sadducean high priest. They adhered strictly to only the Pentateuch as their holy scriptures. So that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. That was it. And so from their very narrow scriptural base, they didn't believe in resurrection. And, and, and they had a very large focus on human responsibility, which is heavily expressed in the law of Moses, the first five books of the law of Moses. And so we even see in the dealings that Jesus had with the Sadducees that he would meet them on their grounds to reach them with uh, the truth, referring to passages such as Exodus 3 verse 6 as proof of the resurrection of the dead. As in that passage, God says, and this is because he's working with such limited scriptures, you've got to draw the lines here that Jesus did. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Jesus 
from that passage in Exodus use that to explain to them that God is the God of the living. And so to say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was to prove that they were alive and living with God in heaven. He could have used a much more explicit passage such as Daniel 12.2 to prove the same point. That says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So that would reach the Pharisees fine because that's part of their scriptures, but it wasn't part of the Sadducees. Jesus didn't use that passage because the strict Sadducees didn't recognize that as scripture. And so those are the Sadducees. Grumpy, narrow, strict, wealthy, unpopular, but powerful. And then we have the Pharisees. They resided primarily in Jerusalem and were divided into about three schools. The disciples of Shammai, or Shammai, Hillel and Gamaliel. These schools were especially concerned about the proper administration of the temple. The disciples of Shammai were more conservative, Hillel were more liberal, and Gamaliel, who Paul stayed under, was renowned for his wisdom and careful management of the Jewish calendar. They had considerable influence over people who would preach in the synagogues and heavily shaped traditions and practices of the Jews. They were pragmatists and made rulings on law to suit the needs and the relevant times. They also chose the more easily digestible interpretations, the smoother way to look at things, the way that didn't ruffle as many feathers, rather than choose the more difficult or more, maybe you would call, maybe precise interpretations. But the Pharisees, they were especially scrupulous to maintain their righteous status before God. See, they were so concerned with keeping to the letter of the law that they even tithed their garden herbs. They fasted twice a week when their requirement was only periodically and they maintained purity laws so stringently that they would even strain out a gnat from a cup and avoided sharing a meal table with those they determined they determined as sinners, as people who habitually broke the law. The Pharisees took their personal relationship with God very seriously in part because they believed that the resurrection from the dead was a reward for living a righteous life. So if that was the reward of living a righteous life, then it could be taken away if they didn't live a righteous life. And so they were were so preoccupied with going above and beyond the law that they were in utter slavery to their own customs and laws and what overtook them was pride in their utter total obedience to the law. So these were the two main groups involved in the internal power dynamics in Jerusalem. They both thought that they were better than the other group. They both thought that they were right and that they each had the correct interpretation of their scriptures. The Sadducees were better because they were pure to the Pentateuch. The Pharisees were better because they observed the law so strictly that their righteousness by the law was unquestionable. And these two groups had come together in agreement on one thing. Paul was to be condemned. They agreed on that. Great. Yep. We're all focusing our anger on Paul. That's where we left off last week. Paul had given his testimony before the crowd whose response was to kill him. The tribune brought Paul into the relative safety of the barracks to examine him by flogging. I'm sure they'd get answers out if you flogged him, right? But it's at this moment that Paul reveals that he is a citizen of Rome. 
and he knew that it was against the law to flog a Roman citizen without a hearing or a formal sentence. And so the officers who did this would face serious charges. And so the tribune inquired as to his citizenship, trying to get more information, and says, you know, I got my citizenship at great cost, great personal cost. Paul, however, he inherited his from birth, which was especially prestigious. Talk about power dynamics. What's going on in this, this barracks right now? Paul has just completely turned them on his head because he'd been bound by order of the tribune unlawfully because he's a Roman citizen. And so now the tribune is scared that Paul is going to have him see consequence for his actions. And so Paul, yes, he's still he's a prisoner in that barracks, but who has the power now? He's used those power dynamics to his advantage. He's turned them on, his, on the head. But the tribune, he still needs answers. He still needs to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so he assembles a chief priest and a council to bring Paul before them and speak. So if you'd like to read for me Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, they're on the screen. So Paul says here that he has a clear conscience before God. Well, that offends God's high priest. And so God's high priest orders Paul be slapped. And so Paul then rebukes Ananias. But Paul didn't know at the time that Ananias was the high priest. They don't have name badges. You know, there wasn't sort of like the uniform or anything. And so Paul then apologizes, citing the law from where? From Exodus 22:28 about not speaking evil about a ruler of his people. And that's very smart if you know that they're Sadducees to apologize and cite the law from the Pentateuch in your apology, right? Okay, he's playing to their niche, you know, he's playing to their interest if you like but Paul's not finished with disrupt with disrupting the power dynamics at play here he's already unsettled the tribune now in verses 6 he does something very interesting with the council then Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees called out in the Sanhedrin my brothers I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead well, doesn't this stir the pot, eh? He knows that that's a big point of contention between these two groups. And they're the two groups accusing him. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and he ordered the troops to go down and take him from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. Paul knew the exact buttons to push to cause the Jews to turn on each other and start fighting against each other rather than all of them fighting against him. He masterfully enlists allies that begin fighting his battle for him. And this causes such commotion that the tribune has no option but to pull Paul out of there and is left in the exact same position as he was before without a single clue as to what's going on. And now those accusing Paul, they can't even agree about what's going on. Paul uses the power dynamics at play to his 
advantage. He knows the Roman power dynamic and turns that to his favour. He knows the Jewish power dynamic and turns that to his favour as well. He might be held in the barracks, but I've got no doubt that Paul knew he was in control, even in the middle of such chaos, mess, violence and disruption. Then something delightful happens. This is one of my favourite verses from Acts so far. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. Do you get this? Jesus stands beside him and says, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Jesus stands right beside Paul and encourages him. It is such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus gives Paul abundant clarity about what his next steps are to be. Paul is to go to Rome and testify about Jesus in Rome. He is to go to the centre of power in the empire and proclaim the gospel there. I love what Jesus does. He encourages Paul in quite a tumultuous time. And then he gives him focus and clarity on the next step to take in his mission. And Wouldn't it be so nice if Jesus would come and stand right beside us when we are in difficult circumstances too? Wouldn't that be beautiful if Jesus just came beside and says, take courage, here's what I want you to do. You know, when we're trying to work out what to do next, wouldn't it be great if when we needed guidance, he just came and stood beside us and told us what to do next? Well, you know what? I believe he does. He might not do it physically like he did for Paul. I mean, don't, wouldn't we all love that? Like the, the physical manifestation of Jesus right beside us, telling us, this is your next step. But he has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. He has given us his scriptures. He has given us the ability to know his character and his will. I had just such a great encouragement on Wednesday when so many people came out to share in a day of prayer and fasting. We had about half the church connecting with different parts of the day and even more got involved. They said that they couldn't attend stuff but they were involved anyway, um, but not here. We had about 20 people for the evening meal and um, it, was, it, was, it was really great to have people, you know, a great morning prayer meeting. Um, we had a great prayer walk where we, we went around and we walked and prayed through the suburbs and prayed for the medical um, precinct, um, prayed for our police uh, outside the police station. And, and it was a great time of walk. And the afternoon was lovely with, with, with some quiet worship and prayer. And then I really, really appreciated and was greatly encouraged by our midweek worship that we had when we were um, after, after our meal. And I think that was such a, for those of us that were here, it was such an important time for us to come before God and to pray, particularly with the news that we received about Gwen on Wednesday, which, praise God, has been a, a miraculous outcome um, from what could have been. And, and it was really beautiful to come in those moments where God was, was speaking to us, where God was aligning our hearts with his, where that still small voice was speaking and we took time to listen. We had a special request for the day. God, lead us as a church to reflect your heart. Guide us in our expressions of ministry and shape our values, mission and vision for our context here in this community. And we prayed through those things and many more throughout the day. We praise God for his faithfulness, for his love and for his mercy, for his grace. We worshipped him for his steadfast love. And, and, and I'm not sure, but for those that were in part of the day, I hope you're as encouraged as I was throughout those moments. Because we, we set aside time to ask God to do for us what he did for Paul, to encourage us and to outline for us 
the next steps as we take as a church. See, for Paul, his next step was to go to Rome. And he's able to use the power dynamics at play to orchestrate this outcome. And these power dynamics continue through the rest of chapter 23 as the Jews plotted to kill Paul. But hearing of this, the tribune sends Paul to Felix, the governor in Caesarea, under the protection of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So Paul's life is protected by the Roman occupation, by nearly 500 soldiers who surround him and take him to the governor. I think that's pretty amazing, you know, that there's a, a, an assassination attempt or plot that the governor hears about. And so he chooses to protect this man's life. He could have just went, eh, what be, eh, if he gets assassinated, eh, whatever. You know, I don't really care for him. But no, God's protection was there. He was to go to Rome. Paul is heard by Felix, who is familiar with Christianity and whose wife is Jewish. And he hears the accusation and Paul's defense in chapter 24 of Acts. Felix delays any pronouncement and he keeps Paul in custody with some liberty and the ability for his friends to attend to his needs. Felix then summoned Paul to speak with him regularly. And Paul takes this opportunity to share with the governor about faith in Jesus Christ. Felix wasn't, however, too impressed with the concept of the coming judgment, which would be for how you live. As a governor, he didn't really care much to hear about that side of things, but continued to talk with Paul often, hoping to get a bribe from Paul during this time as well. Always, you know, above board, isn't he? You know, local governors. Felix seems to recognise Paul's innocence, but was more concerned with currying favour with his constituents the local Jewish population, than administering justice. And so Paul is kept in prison for a further two years. He is succeeded by Porcius Festus. That's a really good name, isn't it? Who wanted to also win favour with the Jews and so uh, agrees to try Paul in Jerusalem. But knowing that the Jews would kill him, Paul invokes his citizens' right of appeal for a trial before the emperor. Paul had not forgotten that his path was to lead to Rome. And so he uses his opportunities to share the gospel with the kings, the leaders and the rulers of that region throughout all of this time, for years. In chapter 25, Festus seeks counsel from the Jewish king Agrippa and his wife Bernice who are visiting. Festus lays out for them the problem he has. There is nothing under Roman law that Paul is being called to account on. They are simply disputes of Jewish doctrine and, are, and about Jesus. Festus, finding nothing to charge Paul with, is trying to work out what to write to Caesar about him because it would be improper to send a prisoner to Caesar without indicating the charges against him. And I'm going to leave it there today because I want us to see that even though Paul is in custody, even though his path seems uncertain, he still uses the power dynamics at play around him to advance the cause of Christ to share the gospel and to testify about Jesus Christ and to follow the path that God has set before him. In our lives, we live amongst many different power dynamics. I mean, we have the official ones such as the federal government, state government, local government. Then we also have our workplaces, our our unique neighbourhoods, our schools, our family, all of these different power dynamics. And they can so easily distract us and take up our time and energy. 
But through all of these, we have the opportunity to testify about Jesus to be salt and to be light, to be his hands and his feet, to share the gospel and to use the power, and to use those power dynamics to our advantage to further the cause of Christ. Just like Paul, in your workplace, you can rise above the politics and be a shining example as you honour Jesus in the way you conduct yourself and do your work. You can be the voice of reason and reconciliation with your friends, family and colleagues as you deal with the shifting power dynamics around you and bring the hope of the gospel into those circumstances. The greatest gift, I believe, that Jesus gave Paul was hope. There was a plan and purpose in place throughout all of this. Paul was given a calm assurance by the Lord, that he was going to get to Rome. He was going to be able to testify about him there too. And we're going to see next week the amazing provision of the Lord through this journey of Paul to Rome. He had hope in his circumstances that God had it all under control. He had hope in the gospel to change the lives of those around him. And I reckon in the back of his mind, he was even going to be able to win Caesar with the gospel. I mean, he was destined to be presented before the emperor to be heard and to plead his case, which it seems is all about Jesus anyway. What a great opportunity to bring the hope of the gospel to the entire empire if he was able to reach Caesar. And I believe that's the kind of challenge we have. That's our challenge, to use the power dynamics at play around us to share the hope of the gospel. So whenever you see opposition or you recognize those power structures around you, those are opportunities to bring the hope of the gospel. So whether you are in your family dealing with power dynamics, struggling with issues there, with relationships, you can use those to bring the hope of the gospel. When you're at work and you're interacting with government agencies and and bureaucracy, and you're struggling with, 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 with what's going on, you can bring the hope of the gospel. In our everyday lives, we have opportunities that are presented to us to bring hope. And there's no greater hope than that is found in Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage us today to be people who bring hope. You know, I think so many people struggle in our world with this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a friend from Tassie who uh, I get frustrated by her post on Facebook. They are filled with fear because we have a Bible-believing Christian Prime Minister and she's fearful for what the world will become under Scott Morrison. But isn't that a terrible way to live your life, in fear because of a person that God has appointed in power over you, I, I, I find that very sad and I find that a moment very confronting every time because whenever I see anything there, I, I, I feel sorry for her that she's living in such a destitute existence where she is in so much fear over the world being created around her by a Christian Prime Minister. Whereas I really believe that one of the things Scott Morrison is going to do for our nation as a Christian Prime Minister is 
is going to bring some hope because if he's faithful to his calling as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what he's going to do. That's what we are going to do. We're going to bring hope, the hope that is in the gospel. So take those opportunities. When you're struggling, when you're you're dealing with, with, and when, you know, if you ever find yourself whinging or complaining about something, there's a power dynamic at play right there. There is something that you've latched onto that, that you, you, you have, you've, you've found something that has, 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 has just pushed your buttons. Maybe use that as a, as a trigger to instead bring hope. Bring the hope of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed as image bearers of the King, Lord, we have been tasked with the, the role of, of bringing hope, the hope of the gospel, to the circumstances we find ourselves in. Lord, I pray that we would use the power dynamics around us that we are living in all the time to use them for, for our favour and to use them for your good and to use them to bring hope. So Lord, I pray that as we, we leave this place today, we would be people who leave full of the hope that we have in the calm assurance that Lord, you are our Lord and Saviour, that Lord, you indeed did die on that cross to set us free from the penalty of sin that, Lord, we have believed in faith and we are set free by that. We are set free to bring hope. And so, Lord, I pray this into each person here that we would be people who bring hope to all circumstances in our lives. That, Lord, we live in the freedom of the gospel and, Lord, that we would share the hope we have with others. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.